Last week we ended the class with uh, a quotation making the observation that if we don't have a reliable copy of the scriptures in front of us, if it is not authentically the Word of God, if we can't trust that it has been transferred to us through the generations in a reliable fashion, then we really don't have any contact with the promises of God. And therefore, we do not have a solid faith in God. The, the writer made the point that we can't have the faith of Abraham. Because Abraham heard the promises of God, believed God, was credited to him as righteousness. If we can't have as much confidence in the message of God that we have in the Bible as Abraham had in hearing his voice, then we can't have Abraham's faith. And so when, as Alan just prayed, we have friends who are facing chemotherapy, we're having friends who have been diagnosed with the return of a cancer stronger than it was the first time, and the doctor says, well, you can have chemotherapy or you cannot have chemotherapy and just let nature take its course. Either way, I don't see much hope. And you can read the words of Romans 8, 28, that in all things God works for good to those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. But if you don't know you can trust the Bible, then you can't trust that promise either. So this class for, for seven weeks has been, for six weeks has been building up to tonight where we're going to talk about how the Bible fares when tested by the same tests that scholars use for any other ancient work of literature about its reliability. But the other part of it is to try to help us follow the instructions from Peter in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, where he says, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to those who ask you of the hope you have with meekness and fear so that you do not fall or you do not become conceited. People will ask us. It will come up in conversation. If people know that we are Christians, that we are believers, at some crisis point in their life, perhaps, sometimes just in friendly conversation, they will want to know, well, why do you believe that? What do you have to go on? So when I was preparing these lessons, somewhere along the way, I couldn't tell you exactly when, the song popped in my mind, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. The Word is our link. The Word is the very Word of God. And that hymn began to come alive for me as I've lived with this material through the summer. 
And so we've sung it, uh, at least some of it, every week. Because I said that uh, part of my goal for this class is for you to be able to sing the words of that song with increasing conviction. And then I thought, you know, I like one word titles. I like the impact of a one word title. So what word conveys this confidence that we can have that our foundation in the Bible as the word of God is firm, unshakable, certain. It's worth risking your life for. So I got out a thesaurus and looked at two or three different words and I came up with invincible. So that's, that's where the title came from. I hope that at the end you will feel a strong conviction about the truth of the Word of God. So two things I want to do tonight is talk about the tests and how the Bible fares in comparison with other books that go through the same testing. And then at the end, I want us to think about, so what? What do we do now? What use do we make of this information? Second page of your handout is How Firm a Foundation. Let's sing. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. What more can He say than to you He has said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled? Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed. I, I am thy God, and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my gracious omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I cause thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials I cause thee to go, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. E'en down to old age all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And when hoary hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. 
The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Would you agree that we live in an increasingly skeptical age about the contents of the Bible, the reliability of it, the trustworthiness of it? A skepticism comes from many sources. In some cases, it's just a skepticism about God's involvement in our lives, especially regarding miracles as they are reported in the Bible. One writer has said that the New Testament has been scoured and scanned and studied and analyzed so long in so many different places that any verse has been suggested as contradicting some other verse at some place, somewhere, at some time. So what do we do in the face of that kind of skepticism? We need to think through, talk through, study through whether those criticisms are valid or whether we can rely on the statements of the Bible as a reliable source of information about the will of God, the nature of God, our relationship with God, what it is that He expects from us, what it is that we are to be able to do, and to be able to do what Peter says we are to do, which is be ready to give an answer. Now, he doesn't say give a dissertation. He doesn't say be able to answer every question. But be able to ask or answer when people ask us about the basis of our faith. Why do we have the hope that we do? We need to be able to express that and to be able to do it with confidence. Is the Bible as it exists today the same as it was when it began 2,000 years ago? Has it been reliably handled down through the ages? Or did believers embellish the original content so that they could come up with the Christ they wanted instead of the Jesus of history. There are those who have suggested that. So is it a reliable source of information? Before the printing press, every book was made by hand. Somebody picked up some implement that was designed to make marks on some kind of material to receive those marks, but it was a person copying the original. Have you ever tried to copy something? One of the, one of the penalties that we have at, at uh, the lower school at MUS is to copy the rules of civility. You know, George Washington's rules of civility that he tried to follow. So as a penalty, make three copies of the rules of civility. Well, so when you sit down to copy something, what is your experience? It's probably like mine. You make inadvertent errors, even though it's right there in front of you. You may copy the same phrase twice or skip 
a couple of lines, maybe on purpose, but, but <laughs> inadvertently do that. Those are, are common errors, and they happened in the biblical manuscripts, but those are so predictable that it's pretty obvious when they occurred. But maybe, maybe there are others. Maybe they occurred often enough to make it unreliable. How accurate is the content of the Bible when it makes an observation about the physical world, about history, saying that this person succeeded that person, succeeded that person. Does the Bible get those things right? And what if it doesn't? There are some people who say, well, it's a theological book. So if it makes mistaken errors, mistakes about history or about the way the world works, that's okay. But if you can't trust the Bible in physical things that you can see and touch and history that there's archaeological evidence about, if the Bible makes mistakes there, then how do you know it doesn't make mistakes about spiritual things that you can't really test? Those are important questions. We need to be able to trust in matters of faith as well as the other things. Here's, here's the conviction that I have about archaeology history compared with what the Bible states. In every case in which the Bible can be compared with known facts, no exception, the Bible is vindicated. The Bible's account agrees exactly with known facts of history or the physical world or anything else. If there are supposed errors, it's because people haven't paid attention to what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say the earth is 6,000 years old or that creation happened in 6006 BC. The Bible says it happened in the beginning, which sounds pretty good to me. There's, there's no date that that idea has been imported, and a lot of people think the Bible says that, but it doesn't. Biblical archaeology is an ongoing function, and there are new discoveries being made continuously all the time that lay to rest many of the criticisms that are still being repeated, even though the evidence is available that corroborates the Bible. I'll give you a, a suggestion of a few in just a minute. What do you call that when you base a conclusion on silence, on the absence of evidence? It's called exactly that, argument from silence. What's wrong, what's the flaw in arguing from silence? Somebody may speak up. Somebody may find the facts that answer the question. And that has happened repeatedly in the case of the record of the Bible. Uh, here are some examples. In 1953, Bernard Ram, who, who wrote a great book, in fact, on the front page of your handout, I've given you a list of a few sources if you're interested in some farther inve further investigation. Uh, Bernard Ram uh, wrote a book entitled Protestant Christian Evidences, 1953. He reported that the, in listing 184 names of kings from various cultures in the book of Genesis, this is 
this is uh, early, this is pre-Abraham, 184 names of the kings, and that had been one of the sources of criticism that people made about the Bible back in the middle of the 20th century and earlier, that without exception, these names are accurately transliterated into Hebrew. They are historical people, even including those who lived 3,900 years earlier than the, what's called the Masoretic text, which was the standard Hebrew text that was used uh, worldwide, dates from about A.D. 900. 184 accurate renderings of ancient names, which people had tried to criticize the Bible for being mistaken about. Other objections now refuted have included the historical silence of any evidence of writing before Moses. Critics used to say, well, Moses couldn't have written the Pentateuch because there wasn't writing yet. They didn't have letter, vowel, consonant writing. Then all of a sudden, somebody discovered the Code of Hammurabi that predates Moses, laws that are in some cases similar to the law of Moses, written on a, a, a column and written on tablets. Since then, there have been other libraries that predate Moses, laying that objection to rest. Um, the nation of the Hittites, not known from secular history for a long time, but the Bible talked about it and talked about the Hittites as, as contemporaries of Abraham. Critics would say, well, the Bible got that wrong. They're mixing up chronology. Then lo and behold, they discovered this huge library of clay tablets up in, in the northern part of what is now Syria. And the Hittites are everywhere. And culturally, they're <laughs> dated from about the time of Abraham. The Bible had it right all along. Uh, one from the New Testament. Uh, in Acts 17, verses 6 and 8, Luke refers to the, the city leaders of Thessalonica as Polytarchs. For nearly a hundred years, critical scholars criticized Luke as a historian because they couldn't find any evidence or reference to anybody called Polytarchs anywhere around Thessalonica. Just didn't exist. But lo and behold, all of a sudden, after World War II, they discovered archaeological evidence, stones engraved, foundation stones, paving stones, calling the city leaders of Thessalonica, Polytarchs. Luke had it right all along. So there are three areas of study that have to do with what we're talking about. One of those is called textual criticism, and it uses the word criticism, but that doesn't mean they're automatically critical. It's not, it's not a negative term. It just means studying intently in a scholarly fashion, supposedly without presuppositions, without a bias. So it's criticism. It, a critical study just means it's trying to take everything as thoroughly and objectively as possible. So textual criticism is the study uh, that we're going to talk about tonight, which is establishing the reliability of an ancient text. Is what we have now, what was written originally, is it the original version? Um, regarding the Bible, historical criticism is what I was just describing. 
analyzing whether or not the Bible's version of history is factual. Uh, geography, culture. Uh, people used to object that the Bible was wrong in describing the days of Abraham because camels weren't domesticated yet. They weren't used for trade. And of course, you've got one of the descendants of Abraham, Joseph, being transported to Egypt as a slave by what? A caravan of camel traders, Ishmaelite. So, no, that's wrong. Well, then lo and behold, they found fossil graveyards that include camel's bones from the time of Abraham and even earlier. So that's historical criticism. And then the third kind of criticism is called literary criticism. And this is in an, uh, anal analysis of documents. This is wording, syntax, literary genre, uh, other things that have to do with interpreting and handling literature, written documents. When it comes to dealing with documents from the ancient world, and, and the Bible would be considered from the ancient world, ancient technically means anything before the printing press. But of course, with the New Testament, we're talking about from the first century A.D., so practically 2,000 years ago, with the Old Testament even longer ago than that. But there are three uh, categories of tests which, which we're going to use tonight. One of them is bibliographical. That's the transmission of the text. How did it get from the original documents through the generations to our time? That's bibliographical. Second is internal evidence. That is, within the document itself, what do you find? What claims does the Bible make for itself? It claims to be the Word of God. And different parts of it say that other parts of it are the Word of God. So that's an internal claim. And then the, the third is external evidence. And this is statements from other sources outside of the document you're looking at. So we'll look at, at those three. What about the process of producing a book in the ancient world? We talked a little bit about this last week, how difficult it was for an ancient book to survive. There were few copies. There weren't safeguards, safe places, few libraries. And so it was just difficult for a book to survive in the first place. But then you've also got the process of reproducing a book by hand, as I described just a minute ago. So consider that in the process of handing on a document from one generation to another, when everything is done by hand, you can't set up the press and then reproduce copies just the same over and over again. What is involved in that and how reliable was that process? We talked about how we do it. But what if you have a professional? What if you have a trained scribe whose job it is to reproduce words that you and the community you're working for are convinced are the words of God and that the wording is important. Here's what we know about a Jewish scribe's work. They were some of the most highly trained and highly respected members of the community. And their work, especially if they were copying scripture, their work had to go through multiple tests before it was ever approved as 
an official scripture, especially the Torah, the five books of Moses. We can uh, use Ezra uh, in, in the Old Testament as an example. Ezra was a scribe. He was also a priest. He was descended from the line of Aaron, you know, who was Moses' brother, was the first high priest. He was also descended from Zadok, who was Solomon's high priest. So he had a high pedigree just in terms of who his ancestors were. He himself was a priest, but he was also trained as a scribe. Here's what um, chapter 7 of Ezra says about him. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. That's Ezra 7, verses 6 and 10. What it says is, he not only learned the Scriptures himself, but then with that devoted preparation, in turn taught it to others. Ezra was a scholar. He was well trained. Each scribe had the burden of copying the original exactly. Even if there was something that he perceived as an error, he was supposed to copy the error. He didn't have the leeway of making improvements as he went. Uh, if, if you want a, a lengthy description of that process, get Josh McDowell's book, God Breathed. Uh, he talks about this, this uh, med medieval uh, Hebrew scroll that he was able to acquire, but then he talks about what went into making that scroll and what the scribes had to go through. Why was it so important that you get it exactly right? Consider the thought process. Even by the time you get to Ezra, what had Israel been through? Do you know when Ezra lived? You know what the, the era of Ezra is when he was in Jerusalem? Yes, the exile had happened. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple was gone. And the people were convinced that they understood finally the reason why that happened. It was God's judgment on them because they had not kept the law. They'd broken the covenant. Where do you find out the details of the covenant? In the law. Where's that? That's written scripture. And so if the only way to prevent that from ever happening again is to know and follow the law, how important is it to have an accurate copy of the law? All that was a part of their thinking and therefore of the training of a rabbi who would be copying Scripture. They had to have an accurate copy of the laws which would help them to keep the covenant and therefore be uh, held as faithful <clears throat> people. One of the ways that the scribes supervised their own work and the, and the community of scribes supervised the work is they knew how many words, individual Hebrew words, were in every book of the Bible. So, when you got through with your work and you counted the number of words you had copied, if you didn't come out with the right number, you had to start over. Here's, here's, how, here's how specific it gets. Not just words, but letters. 
The Torah, which is the five books of Moses, have 304,805 letters. So a copy made by a scribe had to have 304,805 letters. Not only that, but they knew that the middle letter in the Torah, that's from Genesis to Deuteronomy, the middle letter in the Torah had to occur at Leviticus 11.42. And the middle verse had to occur at Leviticus 10.16. Or the middle word. And the middle verse had to occur at Leviticus 13.3. Why is that significant? Because the center, the middle, is the emphasis. It's the point. What's, the, what's being discussed in Leviticus 10, 11, 12, and 13? It's the purity laws. It's how God's holy people remain holy, which, by the way, is a quotation from Hebrews 11, 44, and 45. Be holy because I am holy. The center emphasis in the Torah is holiness. How do you know what holiness looks like in terms of commands? From the Torah. So if it isn't written correctly, you don't, you're, you're flying blind. Jay? Yeah, I understand how they could find the, the center letter and the center word, but wouldn't they have a hard time finding the center verse since verses didn't exist? They may not have called it verse. Maybe the center phrase or idea, but I figured for purposes of our study, verse would communicate. So, guess what the Hebrews called scribes who copied Scripture? They called them those who count. The term is soferim. The soferim were not those who are trained writers. They were those who count. Because if they didn't have it right, they didn't have the word from God. It was that meticulous. I was reading in uh, uh, the book that several of you have read recently, uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And he was saying in there that uh, the, the way the Quran is used by Muslims is to recite the words. The words have to be right. But he says they get so caught up in the right words, they don't even think about what it means. It's just getting the words right. So what was Jesus' criticism in the Gospels about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? He says... You study the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but they testify about me and you refuse to come to me to have life. Why? Because they were counting words. But that's a part of the quest for accuracy. And one of the reasons why it doesn't really matter what gap of time you postulate from the original writings of the Old Testament and the copies that were made by scribes because the scribes were not about to let a mistake get by and they were checked and double checked and triple checked. 
You heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? They enter at this point. They're about the Old Testament. We haven't talked about the New Testament yet. We've only got 15 minutes left. How did that happen? In, in, in uh, modern studies through the middle of the 20th century, the standard Hebrew text was called the Masoretic text. That was the community of Jews who had preserved it. it the oldest copy dated from about AD 900. So that was the basis for uh, the English translation of the Old Testament. In 1947, that world was turned upside down when some scrolls were discovered in caves overlooking the Dead Sea. So they came to be called the Dead Sea Scrolls. When they were chemically treated and analyzed enough that they could be unrolled and read, it turned out they were rule books for the community, but they also contained a copy of every book of the Old Testament except the book of Esther. Well, okay, that's interesting, but here's why it's significant. These scrolls were dated from about 100 B.C. until the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Anybody remember when I said the oldest copy of the Masoretic text dates from? 900. All of a sudden, you have leapfrogged a thousand years in the content of the Hebrew text. So scholars could compare and see what changes had taken place, what additions, what embellishments had been incorporated into the text, what changes in content. So they compared. What did they find? No change. The, the, the Copies are so close together that the only difference is, is an occasional misspelling of a word or maybe a word order, but the content is exactly the same. How could that be? Since they were copying everything by hand, the way it could be is the scribes were that closely disciplined. It was that important to copy the Word of God accurately. The Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek. We talked about this either last week or the week before, about 200 BC. Why is that important? Because it gives you a completely different angle from which to compare the contents of the text. So how does the Greek translation compare with the Hebrew version? The content is the same, Except that in some cases, uh, a few months ago, there was a seminar on the Dead Sea Scrolls out at the Biblical Museum in Collierville. And uh, the speaker said, the Dead Sea Scrolls have clarified the meaning of some Hebrew words that were, were kind of muddled or uncertain in the later version. So our translations have been improved. The Greek translation of Hebrew words gives you uh, an exercise in what it means to go from one language to another. In addition, there's something called the Samaritan Pentateuch. The five books of Moses were preserved by the Samaritans who lived north of Jerusalem, who also were, after the exile, uh, separated from the Jewish people. They had their own copy. It's another way to compare. And even though there are some minor differences, the content, the message is the same. That's all of that is on the 
Old Testament. Let's talk about the New Testament. 27 books originally written in Greek, common Greek, Koine Greek, the, the language spoken from one end of the empire to the other by everyday ordinary people, not the scholars, not the well, highly educated people. There are currently known more than 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament in various forms. And over the last year, I've read a figure of 22,000 fragments or other representations of contents of the New Testament in Greek. Keep that figure in mind. 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. 22,000 manuscripts that shed light on the textual reliability. Uh, remember those uh, numbers. There are complete copies of the Bible, including the New Testament, dating from the late 4th and early 5th century in Greek. The oldest fragment is from the Gospel of John, and it is in a library, I mean, in a, in a museum library in England. It's from the Gospel of John, dates from A.D. 125. Best guess is that John originally wrote in probably in the 80s. So very close proximity, but that's a fragment. Complete New Testament from late 4th, early 5th century. But in addition to copies of Scripture, actual Bibles from that period of time, you have Scripture quotations from translations. Early on, the, the New Testament was translated into Old Latin, Syriac, and Coptic, which was the language of Egypt. Very early. There are references to Scripture in sermons, tracts, uh, debates with, with uh, detractors from, from Christianity, lectionaries, which were collections of Scripture used in worship, even books from heretics contain quotations of Scripture that help us to know what the state of the Scripture was at that point in time. Somebody has said that if all the Bibles in the world were destroyed, you could reproduce the whole New Testament just from these other sources, just from contemporary sources and second and third century sources where people were discussing the content of the New Testament. So you don't have to rely just on copies of the New Testament to determine its reliability. Or consider the proximity of time. All the books of the New Testament were written within 60 years of the resurrection of Jesus. Why is that important? The Gospels were written within 30 to 35 years of the resurrection of Jesus. The letters of Paul were written within 20 years of the resurrection of Jesus. The letter of James was written within 15 years of the resurrection of Jesus. Why is that important? It means there were people alive at the time these books were written and began to be distributed who could either corroborate or object to the version of events as they were recorded in the New Testament. All the New Testament was written within the lifetime of the contemporaries of Jesus. Keep that figure in mind. And by the way, that consensus, there's, 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 
practically universal consensus now that that, that, that dating is accurate. But 50 years ago, there were people who were trying to say that parts of the New Testament hadn't been written for 100, 200, even 300 years after the time of Jesus. Well, that argument can no longer be made. And so as the time is shortened from the events to their writing, it increases our confidence in reliability. Luke emphasizes that he did careful investigation and talked to eyewitnesses. Peter, as we said in an earlier lesson, writes as an eyewitness when he talks about his experience with the transfiguration. John in 1 John says he is writing about that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked at, which our hands have touched. Eyewitness content. Okay, now here's the comparison. Ancient writings. There are several ancient writings that, that are often mentioned in this study, but just consider these. Caesar's Gallic Wars, his account of fighting the Gauls and, and defeating them in the 50s B.C. There are 10 copies reliably attributed to him. 10, not 5,000, but 10 copies survive. And there is a 900-year gap between when he wrote and when the oldest of those manuscripts was copied, was written. The history of Thucydides is known from eight manuscripts. 1,300 years separate the original from the oldest known copy. But scholars do not doubt its authenticity. The history of Herodotus is supported by eight manuscripts, 1,350 years between its original and its oldest copy. Homer's Iliad is second to the New Testament in numbers of manuscript copies. Iliad was written in the 8th century B.C. The oldest copy dates from the 13th century A.D., and you want to know what the numbers for second place are? The New Testament has 5,000 New Testament manuscripts. Homer's Iliad, 647. What's the significance of all this? No scholar doubts the genuineness of those secular works that I just listed. And yet the Bible has more attestation in manuscripts, internal evidence, external evidence, and closer proximity of time in the copies to the original than any of those. So there's no scholarly, critical, literary, historical criticism to doubt the reliability of the Bible. Why do people still doubt it? Do you think it might be for reasons other than scholarship? You might be, think it might be for reasons other than what the evidence shows. As a Christian, we have nothing to fear from facts, from examining the truth. The Bible is more reliable, has more attestation than any other book. So if that is true... So what?
Do we win? Is that the point? Our side wins? What is the purpose of the Bible? Why do we have God's Word revealed to us, faithfully conveyed by its original writers, faithfully copied through the ages, handed to us in a faithful, reliable form? What is the point? I used the analogy earlier from uh, Eugene Peterson about the Bible comes to us in the form of a book, but book to us means something that's external, something that sits on the shelf, something you may read and enjoy, you may contemplate, you may think about, but it goes on the shelf when you're through with it. That's not what the Bible was written for. The Bible wasn't given to us to stay external to us, to take down occasionally and then to put back. God gave us the Bible to form us, to reform us, to change the people we are. So don't let the world press you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, says Paul. That's in Romans 12. In 2 Corinthians 3, he says, We with unveiled faces. The veiling was preventing the Jews from understanding their scriptures. But for us in Christ, the veil is taken away. So what? So that we are being transformed into the image of Christ. That's what the Bible is for. That's the so what. So we need a new conviction. We need to be convicted about spending time with the Bible and not just to check something off our list, not just to pat ourselves on the back. Because in the example I mentioned earlier, Muslims can do that. Muslims can quote the Quran. They even believe that Muhammad was prophesied in the book of Deuteronomy. But they missed the point. The Jews in Jesus' day missed the point. Is it possible that we as Christians could miss the point? Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. <clears throat> Dan. Can I just say one thing? This, this uh, discussion, superb. Um, it reminds me of the title of the book, I think, by Os Guinness. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. That's my comment. Let's pray. Holy Father, we stand in awe that you love us so much that you would not only forgive us and open the path to relationship with you, but that you would also give us your guidance continually in your word. It is such a gift. 
Help us to appreciate the gift that it is and grant that we might use it as you intended. May we allow the contents of the Bible to strengthen our confidence in you and to transform us into the people that you would have us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.